Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for another episode of Wusha Workshop. Today we're going to be talking about Magic Blade, a 1976 film directed by Cho Yuen, and it's based on a book by Gu Long, uh, which you can find at, uh, at Wusha World. They actually have a translation of it there. I think it's um, uh, Horizon Bright Moon Saber or something to that effect. Um, and if I'm wrong on that, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but uh, but it's a good, it's a really good story, uh, and and the movie is considered a classic. It's 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 a, it's a highly regarded Usha film. Um, so Joel, I think this was your first time seeing it, correct? Yeah, I never saw this one before. So what's what was your reaction to it? Just you know, just as a viewer, did you like it? Did you think it sucked? No, I really liked it. I I liked it, and it reminded me like it. It reminded me a lot about anime because of a few like little tricks they did. Like a lot of times, you don't see attack and attack hit. You mm-hmm. see them like throw the attack, and then you hear something, and then like they switch to a different angle, and the guys yeah. of them falls off. So there's little things like that where I'm, I'm like I'm looking at, it and I'm like, this definitely planted the seed in some animator's mind about mm-hmm. how to do this. So um, so that was neat. It also, just as as a movie on its own merit, it's really it's really fun and, and immersive, and there's a lot of like twists and turns. It's a lot of really colorful characters, which was fun. So, I, actually, when I was watching it, I uh, I had a moment where I was like, "This is a very Joel movie," and I realized something about myself. I like movies with a lot of different, distinct, and flavorful textures. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff that goes on in this movie. There's even a really fun little comedy scene that comes out of nowhere, like near the end of the movie, and I genuinely laughed because I was like, "They actually pulled a really good reversal there that mm-hmm. defied my expectations." That's great. So. Um, yeah, five stars. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, this. I mean, this is a classic film. There's no. I mean, you know, very few people complain about it. Uh, Cho Yuen is a really good director. I, I love a lot of his movies, and and I think this is probably a good one to see if you're curious about him. Um, others that I would probably recommend are Duel for Gold or Killer Clans, uh, Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan, or uh, Web of Death, which uh, is related. You know, we, we've. We've discussed that one in the past. That's kind of connected to this one in certain ways. Um, but uh, I guess, I mean, other people have already discussed Magic Blade, you know, extensively. So I just want to kind of do it on a, on a smaller scale, I think, uh, more suited for the discussion we're going to have today. Um, and I was thinking, the thing that you said really stuck out for you were the villains. So I was curious, uh, number one, how the villains in this film stuck out for you. But number two, uh, what you thought of that in terms of a gaming context. Oh yeah. I'm actually uh, running a playtest for Lone Wolf Fist right now. So having villains that are, that represent are like the, the ones in this movie, it immediately struck me as something that was very gameable. So, okay. So this movie has a ton of bad guys, like way more than I would normally cast a movie with. Like if someone came to me with a premise and it was like, Hey, I've got like 13 really distinct bad guys that all need screen time. I would probably say you've got a half that number or a quarter. That's way too many. But the movie pulls it off. The movie pulls off, like, scene after scene of not only, like, really good fights, mm-hmm. but really good fights with unique characters that we just got introduced to either in this scene or a previous one. There's a few recurring villains that are through most of the movie that actually die and get replaced by equally interesting villains yeah. in the last half of the movie. Like, so this movie has this amazing formula where it's able to not only make really memorable, fun villains that have gigantic themes and entire scenes of elaborate, like, stuff going on. At one point, they they draw a giant Chinese chessboard in a market square and fight a battle there. But the battle also has Devil Grandma, who's yeah. got a, a, like, what is basically a hot dog cart filled with different kinds of poisoned food and also bad guys. All that happens and then bleeds into the next scene where they do something totally different with the same villains and different villains. And what's so cool like, about that next scene, by the way, is that the chess game still hasn't finished. It's still part yes. of the chess game. And that's another good thing. This movie genuinely surprised me a bunch. That was one of the times. That was the first time when I was like, wait, they're still doing that? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so that was the first time it really caught me that it was like, okay, this movie is really smart. They do it later on with that comedy thing I was talking about, which I think deserves special mention. I'm just going to give it a real quick call out here because it's, it's a really simple scene, same premise that we saw earlier in the movie. And actually we just saw a scene where he's fighting like a painter in this exact same way where they, they set up the villain 
and they give you his whole shtick, and he fights, and he wins. It's pretty pretty clean. And he's done that two or three times in this movie. So he winds up in a forest. There's a general guy sitting on a throne, and he's like, all right, men, attack them. And they attack him in this really kind of elaborate, sort of almost cartoonish way. And he beats him, and the general like gets up and turns off and, and heroically walks off. So he chases him, and he's like, I'm going to kill this guy. The dude turns around, and he's like, uh, you wouldn't fight an unarmed guy, would you? My sword's fake. And it turns out he's just an actor. He can't fight at all. <laughs> no, he was just hired to intimidate the dude. It's a it's a really cool thing. It's something I, I actually I'm working on a small adventure right now, and I I pulled that into it. Um, we don't actually the adventure might not even get published, but the but the idea of the thing was we had a mystery, and I wanted to have a, a character who I knew I didn't want to die right away, and I didn't want to like do anything cheap to um, to like save him from dying. But I figured I'd make him smart and have him hire ten actors to pretend to be him and fend off the party kind of a similar type thing and the thing i the thing i love about that scene is how, how it kind of reminds you of there are other ways to throw challenges at player characters in this kind of a setting and it doesn't necessarily you know a guy pretending to be the you know the toughest martial hero in the land is is some ways just as interesting and challenging as a guy who really is um you know, so that that and that scene was legitimately funny too. That was the other thing about it. It was. I love that dude's acting because it really comes out of nowhere, which is kind of the essence of comedy is that you don't expect it. I I like. There's a lot that can get lost culturally when it comes to comedy, but I laughed. I actually laughed when I saw that, and that's such a rare treat that this movie is able to give me. Well, so, can, and the thing that was cool is he worked either way. You could have bought him as this eccentric, powerful villain, or you could have bought him. Oh no, he's just faking it. That's why he's acting that way. You know, it, it, it was it was a really cool performance, I thought. Um, yeah. And, and just to get back to what you were saying before, uh, you know, Gulong's actually known for just having tons of characters like this. Like, you read a Gulong story, and it's just like an endless parade of, of really well-thought-out characters that are distinct and, you know, you know, often, you know, antagonists for the hero. And I think that's the thing that Cho Yuen said he liked about Gulong and why he made so many Gulong-inspired movies. Um, but one of the things Cho Yuen's sort of famous for is being a little bit confusing as a result because a lot of his films, I think you've seen some of them at this point, you kind of get you kind of get wave after wave of character and, and you, you can get lost. But Magic Blade seems unusual in that it's not confusing at all. Um, and it's very cohesive. It's it's It all binds together very well you, you never feel like that you're just sort of like okay what's this group who's that and if you do lose track of anybody you're not particularly worried about it because you know that they all are connected to this master you guy and they keep going back to those scenes where they report to master you and it's all very dramatic and it kind of i don't know it just I, I i i wasn't too concerned about those scenes you know when i've seen the movie in the past but when i watched it last night i i I I, I, I I found that that was a particularly dramatic, sort of effective way to build up the villain. Do you know what I mean? It was just uh, and and also just it 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 created the sense that there's this real organization at work, and it kind of showed you because normally in a movie they don't show you that they show you, um, you know that stuff is going on, you know the villains plotting and planning, but you don't get as much of the like daily reports of all the minions to the villain. And so I don't know. Did you did you have any thoughts on that one? Or no, I I didn't think about it while I was watching the movie. But you're right. Those are a really good way to kind of anchor the movie and, and keep you on the same page with what's going on because they do literally pause the movie and have the bad guys explain what's going on with the hero to the main villain. And if you didn't have those scenes, the very last battle with the main villain would seem kind of cheap because it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. So that's a really good way of kind of like actually foreshadowing that in a way that makes the whole movie more satisfying to watch. Also, it's kind of nice to make – if you were getting lost in the plot, which I didn't have any trouble with it. But if you were getting lost in the plot, it's not a bad way just to get the audience on the same page like, hey, remember when this happened? Yeah. This is what that meant. Wink. No, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think um, I think the other thing that, that it's – it's uh it's it's good for in terms of gaming because i want to try to bring this to gaming is that's a useful thing to think about when you're running a game like when whenever i have uh you know uh, different groups in play and villainous organizations and they're dealing with the party you know you 
it's helpful to think about, okay, what is the, the guy that they just like sent off running into the woods, who's now going to go report to the villain or something like, how long does he have to walk before he gets to, you know, what is he going to say? It kind of, it can, it can create a little bit more internal consistency. If you're just thinking in terms of, okay, now devil grandma is going to go and tell master you, you know, about where the party is heading. And then that kind of explains how they're able to set up an ambush at the location that they're going to. And when the party gets there and there is an ambush, it's, it, it's plausible. It's not like, it's not out of the blue and, and insane that the DM just dropped this, uh, this ambush on them, you know? Yeah. We're going to go back to the quantum over there where if there's always going to be an ambush, but no, if you, if you telegraph that stuff, especially if you draw the player's attention to it as players, real like, hey, you let that guy get away. Yeah. You know, that means he's going to go back and report. So you guys should be on your guard. Yeah. It's okay to like drop, character and just tell that to the players because of the the kind of tactical strategic element of the the game that they're playing and i think that keeps actually helps them stay immersed in, in character in a lot of ways when you break character a little bit and actually let them think about the game as a game you mean like actually describe what's going on with the be- off camera yeah essentially like you know they have a nice they have a big fight scene you know with devil grandma and the the tactician guy devil grandma gets away and you just straight up like you know because you've been describing stuff in character and doing the voices you gotta do devil grandma's voice right and like you just kind of let that drop for a minute and like you just address the get up over the screen and like address them as players the tactical dimension the the i am a player dimension of interacting with role playing games is still something that can immerse you mm-hmm. it's not something that will always hit with this this kind of dissonant thud whenever you breach that and speak with them like directly about the consequences of the game mechanics in the game that stuff that stuff goes hand in hand with the role playing in a more immersive dimension okay i don't know i i, I might be reluctant to do that only because i like to like i don't like if something's going on behind the scenes that they're not seeing, I wouldn't want to have them know that, and then, <coughs> do you know what I mean? It might, it might, because then they have yeah, I, uh, I character knowledge and player knowledge to juggle. I understand. I I think it's important in a lot of cases to uh, point out that the the player characters. I make the assumption of them in most of the games I design, most games I run, that they're really smart and they know more. That's they they know and suspect more that's going on then okay. they wouldn't necessarily see with their own eyes. I think that in a lot of cases, like old school GMs tend to kind of drift away from that. Yeah, and, they, and I'm probably a little like, bit more in the old school molds that might make explain. Yeah, I, I grew up and cut my teeth on Exalted. So like the assumption was that players were basically omnipotent in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, in, in old school stuff, it's very different where they have a much more limited amount of knowledge. And mm-hmm. that, that limit is important because it, it means they have to use the resources of time or effort or, or magic or whatever to get more information. That's a vital element of like really old school dungeon crawls and stuff like that. And I do, I do make certain to do that, but an important distinction between how I do it and how like Gary Gygax was reported to do it is that I make certain to draw the player's attention to what they don't know and what they do know or do suspect. So there's three little boxes there. Because that allows them to think about it tactically as an element of the game and draws their attention to how they should be interacting with the game. So they, they okay, think I about stuff like, oh, oh, I, I, I see what you're saying. I should be using light right now because well, I can't see that corner. I mean, that I don't – okay, so I, I, I might be following. I'm not sure. But I guess w- <laughs> what, where, where, what I would do – because I do like the players to sort of know how is the machinery working? Like how is Brendan making decisions about things so that I can understand this world sometimes? Because that can – that if they understand my logic, that can that can help them sort of figure out how the world operates and and yeah. what's what's a reasonable expectation, what's an unreasonable expectation. So, if I have say a uh, a method that I'm using for determining something that's going on off camera, like the party sends a wave of men to go attack an inn and kill somebody, right? Uh, I'll say to them, okay, I'm gonna ma- I'm making some rolls right now, um, and these are dice pools that reflect the relative power of the groups that you sent and the tactics, tactics you used. Uh, I'm not going to, I wouldn't necessarily tell them the outcome uh, until they went there and found out, but I would let them know what method I was using so that they understood both so that they sort of understood just sort of like how I'm doing things, but also uh, because I think it's, it's just a great way to get feedback from the players. If they, if they like, you know, like I find that players will, will uh, let you know what they think of the method that you're using and, and so, uh, so it's it's a good way to get feedback. 
and and to know if you're kind of doing something that seems to be working with people um and also it it, it doesn't make it all seem arbitrary you know because otherwise they might just assume you're making an arbitrary decision which which you want to avoid you want to make certain that the players feel like they're at, even though they don't have direct control over what's what the universe is doing they have control over their actions and at least have the control about kind of sending out those potential things like yeah. in the case of sending out hitmen like you're doing there they want to know that those hitmen will function like they would if they were standing right there fighting with yeah. them they they don't want it to be like oh the gm decided they died yeah. which is unsatisfying and and just to be clear what i do is i don't actually because of time considerations i don't actually have a fight between the hitmen and the guys like full mm-hmm. like using the full system i reduce it to they sent a level seven guy so i'm gonna have him roll seven d10 and he's going up against a level four guy, so I'll have him roll four d10. And I'm also going to account for the tactics that the party used. They they used a particularly skillful uh, strategy that you know involved poisoning him before he went to bed. So I'll give them an extra two d10 on the die pool or something. Uh, yeah, and it, making sure, certain that you can have systems like that that kind of go on beyond behind the scenes that abstract the more detailed ones that you would definitely want the players to interact with. I think that's a good, healthy design. Yeah, I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful. Um, but I, I do want to um, I want to talk specifically about some of the characters now, just for the sake oh, yeah. of time. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about the characters. And I think the first character we have to talk about is Devil Grandma, because, yeah. number one, yeah. she's... I, I mean, everybody loves Devil Grandma, I think, but she is just one of the, the most amazing characters. I, I, she's the... It, as far as I'm concerned, she's the best thing in the film. Um, and high uh, uh, what was that? Is it high praise? Not uh, not inaccurate. She's great. She steals the show. No, and that's the actress is actually Teresa Hopping, who I've mentioned before, and she plays a lot of characters that are kind of eccentric. Uh, they're not they're not always this extreme, but uh, and she, and it, it's a pretty radical transformation if you ever see her without the devil grandma makeup. But she she's just an amazing actress, and and I I th- this that character especially just. The the level of commitment to the to to the role was was extraordinary. I thought, and um, and and I just love the whole setup of you know like that scene where they're playing chess and one of the women is oh devil grandma what's your specialty tonight and she says oh uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna do uh, some uh, uh, you know what did she say boiled yan nan fei and 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 fried fu hong se and 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 we're gonna we're gonna have um. Uh, 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 braised the next one. Yeah, bra- uh, uh, braised, uh, braised Miss You, and and all and all the you know is it, it, it was a really you know funny scene, and also it, it, the, the the undercurrent of the fact that if they lose this match, they're going to end up as dinner is um yeah you know, it, it, something that, that sort of heightens yeah. the mood. There, there is something about her that makes you really buy the fact that she is a freaking cannibal and totally cool with it. Yeah. Oh, she's she's uh, I mean you sort of like fear her and respect her at the same time do you know what I mean and she's also a little bit adorable do you know what I mean there's like a there's like a uh there's like an adorable quality to the way she does things like it like she's 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 a cannibal she's she's trying to drink the hero's blood but it's almost like she's unaware or hasn't thought through all of the moral implications of it all it's like it's like it seems to be coming from from this genuine place of enthusiasm that just bypassed the whole, should I be doing this? Um, yeah, there's a certain joy to V about the character that is just spellbinding. Uh, yeah. she, she's delightful. And it's weird to say, you know, that, that cannibal grandma is delightful, but watch the movie. You'll agree. She's delightful. Yeah. She, she she's like, a, she's, she's like, she shines. Like she, she sort of, she shines and, 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 and brings a lot of, a lot of joy to the, uh, to the scenes that she's in. Um, and it and it's a, and, and 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 um and I don't know I just th- I think that those kind of characters can really work well in a game you know the sort of uh, really over the top you you sort of pick one pronounced eccentricity and just like make a mountain out of it do you know what I mean <laughs> that it, it's it, the characters stand out they're memorable and and if and if and if you're and if all of your mechanics line up properly they can be truly terrifying you know that that's uh. So, so I, I, I quite like having an array of devil grandma type characters in my games. Um, yeah, also she uses some of the most interesting powers. Like she's got like 
poison and paralysis, and she eats like again she eats people, so she got this like grossness to her. There's so much texture to her that's fun, and she never serves the same dish twice. Remember, he says, "Oh, it's gonna be her thunder bullets or whatever," and then nope, a bunch of guys pop out, and it's not the thunder bullets. Yep. And it's like she makes a point of that. I never serve the same dish twice, and she poisons the river. She poisons yep. the river, knowing that this woman is gonna go and get uh gonna go to get water to clean his wound and then and inadvertently poison him you know it's a it, she she's just this really wicked woman um and what kind of poison was she using that was so potent that even diluted by being poured upstream admittedly was still enough to almost immediately incapacitate the guy for over an hour Yikes. i mean i don't know i think i think i think there was a little movie magic in that poison to be <laughs> honest um, but uh but okay so let's talk about well, I guess we'll have to talk about Yen Nan Fei first because he's sort of there's sort of a fake out in the movie where you're led to believe oh. uh, Yen Nan Fei is Mister Yu or Master Yu, but it's actually not him. It's a much more complicated situation, which I would liken to sort of a twisted Willy Wonka scenario. Um, yeah, it is a Willy. Wonka. I was thinking about the Dread Pirate Roberts from Princess Bride. Yeah, too. Was, it's like that oh, too. That's what yeah. they're doing. Then they didn't do that. So I was like, this movie just keeps twisting and turning. Yeah, it's well, it's it's it, basically. So I'm going to spoil it for everybody. So if you haven't seen the movie, you might want to pause here and watch it because one hey, one of, one of the, spoilers. I, I wouldn't usually do a spoiler warning on most wushu movies. This one, you should watch it. You should yeah. watch it before you get it spoiled. Yeah, so definitely. So, Amazon so like, Prime, grab it very seriously. If you haven't seen it, pause. Go onto Amazon Prime if you have it and watch Magic Blade, uh, or put it on pause and wait months until you you know you actually see the thing. <laughs> Um, but right now I'm going to spoil it. So basically, uh, there's this woman and in the, I'm going to call her by the name they use in Hong Kong movie database, but on prime, they use a different name for her. His name is Moonheart and it's played by Tenny Tien, who's, I, I think quite remarkable in the role. And, yeah, and, really and, and, and she sort of is this background figure throughout the movie, but then it turns out that she's actually sort of like the mistress uh, or the, the wife of master Yu, or somehow connected to him. And she's able to offer the hero, uh, you know, all these riches and power. And he goes to face a guy who he thinks is Master Yu. He's been traveling with this man named Yen Nan Fei, who is a guy he had a duel with, and he's supposed to meet up and have another duel. And all this stuff happens where people are trying to kill Yen Nan Fei. And along the way, Yen Nan Fei disappears, and he's told Yen Nan Fei dies. But then when he goes to Master Yu's residence, he... Uh, he, he he confronts somebody in a mask and he he figures out that it's uh, Yen Nan Fei, who basically says he's Master Yu. But uh, after the duel, Yen Nan Fei kills himself, and and then uh, the the woman Moonheart, played by Tani Tien, comes out and says that now he's Master Yu, and and she takes him to a mirror when he asks to see Master Yu and show you know it says like it's a Master Yu is just a, a an image, it's just a projection, it's a um. You know, it's it's like Joel was saying. It's like a dread, dread pirate Roberts thing. Like, yeah, Nan Fei was gonna be Master Yu, but he's dead, so now you can be Master Yu. And <laughs> and so that's all kind of nice and wrapped up in a bow. But then they throw this other twist where there's actually an uh, an old master who's the real Master Yu, who is just you. It's still the dread pirate Roberts situation, but he's using them as a shield so that he can remain in power in the martial world without being challenged. So they're sort of like his public face, and. Um, it's a it's a really clever scenario. Um, I don't know what what did you think of that twist because it is kind of like a a sequence of twist after twist after twist. It is a sequence of twists, but again, in a lesser movie that would have felt cheap. But because, like you said, they anchored all those scenes where people were reporting to him, and there was clearly like layers and layers of deception telegraphed in the movie. It didn't feel cheap. It felt amazing. I was yeah. like, oh, they're doing Dread Pirate Rock. Or first, it was like, oh, okay, so. You know, this dude is definitely in non-fay. Okay, so that's a Dread Pirate Roberts thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, nope, there was actually a super grandmaster. He's got an extendo staff fight. <laughs> I loved it. I really loved it and was genuinely surprised and impressed by it because I, it, it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. This wasn't one of those last minute reversals that you see a lot of times in wuxia movies where it was like, oh, this was really what was going on the whole time. Fight, 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 fight. Yep was telegraphed and that telegraphing made a lot of difference and it yeah. made it feel like a payoff which no, was great 
It de- it definitely did, and and also it wouldn't have made sense if there wasn't that guy because they kept reporting to him throughout the movie. So you kind of yeah, had to have you know it was sort of like this hanging thing in the back of your mind after uh, Yen Nan Fei dies. Like, well, wait a second, what about the guy they were reporting? You know, because he was traveling with him. How could he? You know, it wouldn't have made sense. Um, so another thing I want to talk about is it, it include it's involved in this scene, uh, and it's a lead in into discussing sort of the the weaponry and the the hidden weapons throughout the movie and the and the and the peacock dart. But at the in the last scene, the master Yu gets in his chair and drops a cage down to protect himself after he's been wounded and starts ascending into the sky on these chains that are lifting the chair. And, and he's kind of laughing and saying, "Well, I'll just meet you again for another duel later." And and uh, um, the hero uh, uh, Fu Hung, uh, launch, his, he's got this really weird sword, which is quite difficult to describe, but really awesome. We'll just we'll just leave it at that. But but the whole time he's been using it, I don't think we've ever actually seen him do this. He he launches it on a chain and impales the guy. Um, and I don't yep. think we saw the sword do that prior to that in the film. Is that correct? Now I, the, the thing about the sword that again makes that feel like a payoff instead of being cheap is that it is clearly more than a sword. It's got all kinds of little tricks kind of put into the way it works. Like, whenever he fights with it, he can hold it by the handle, which is, like, adjacent to the blade, and flip it around. And he does that a lot throughout the movie, but he doesn't do it at first. Very importantly, that's a thing that you see later on. And there's a lot of little tricks like that that he shows. So when he finally throws it on a chain in the ultimate attack of the movie, uh, uh, Killing Master Yu... You again kind of have that telegraph where it was like this: this sword can do a lot more than we think it can do, and it doesn't feel again. It doesn't feel like there's just an ass pull. It feels like a payoff. And and I like how the hero is also somebody who has this hidden weapon that he hasn't really shown to anybody until this last moment. It's sort of like a, um, you know, he's a little bit sneaky too. Do you know what I mean? Like that was kind of a that was kind of a sneaky move. It wasn't. It was. It was a little bit of a backstab in a way. Even though I mean, you know, he's kind of got every right. You know, the guy was a total jerk to him. But, oh, total jerk. But uh, but it was it was a shady maneuver, and and I feel like the, the his character is pretty dark. I think. Um, you know, he's what's his background? He's kind of wandering the Zhang Hu sort of his heart sort of always searching for this woman that 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 when he went back to the garden she wasn't there anymore and married somebody else and. Um, and so, you know, he's kind of, and it's, it's, it's one of these roles where the, where the hero's kind of got like a, like the, the stubble, like the stubble. And he's got, yeah. he's got sort of like a, almost like a poncho that he's wearing. Like it definitely, he looks like a character that's sort of pulled out of a spaghetti Western in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. I got a, I got a real few dollars more vibe out of the dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that was, that was, uh, you know, uh, some of the inspiration here, but the look, the, the look is cool. And again, it kind of gets into sort of the borrowing thing of you know it's not necessary you know the, these things can can blend and be nice together if you if you allow them to be you don't have to be too uptight about it i think sometimes yeah i, I um, hate people put up walls between like different cultural inspirations like i've never met a human being that has been totally firewalled unless like i don't know i've never met anybody that naive in my life like we yeah. live in a much smaller world than that like cultures yeah. blend and mash together and make new stuff all the time that's great it's a wonderful process. We shouldn't look at that like it's 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 bad. Like who looks at that like it's bad? Like racist, bad people. But um, <laughs> people like uh, the worst elements of H.P. Lovecraft, like stuff like that. I, I don't like that stuff. I, I like cultures to to cross pollinate a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I my, well, I, I also I like the, the the source material here is stuff that draws on other sources of inspiration. So I think that it's you know. Again, I, I mean, I th- I'm probably beating a dead horse, but I just don't think that you should, uh, you know, I think you've got to treat wuxia as a living genre in a game. And, you know, you, you want to stay true to the genre, but you don't want to, uh, you don't want to, like, dip it in amber and just have this stifling experience of it's got to, there are these eight points that can only be, that can only be hit during a game because it's wuxia. And those are the eight wuxia points. And anything outside of that, is bad you know like that that i think i think the thing that makes a movie like magic blade interesting a thing that makes the Cho yuen films interesting and makes the gulong stories interesting is you'll watch them and you're like oh i think he was getting this idea from a james bond movie or you know yeah. oh i think like like that sounds very nietzschean to me that you know like things like that can 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 kind of make it more interesting um now what what did you what did you think of the 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 ultimate weapon in the in the in the movie the peacock dart 
Peacock Dart. Oh, man. I, I had a lot of feelings with Peacock Dart as the movie went on. Uh, first of all, it was it was unexpected because I expected a sword. I think they actually telegraphed it as a sword at first. Then as it turns out, it's like this little kind of ninja star looking thing that's also like this decorative flower. And again, I thought it was going to be more mechanical, but it's got kind of more of an alchemical dimension to it. Uh, they they pick up these these feathers off of the thing and throw them, and they explode in what I imagine they were trying to convey with the limited 70s technology that they had. What I imagine they were trying to convey as some kind of like ultraviolet radiation magical laser thing. <laughs> like it it doesn't just kill you; it just like annihilates this whole entire area. Um, so it's it's got a real WMD kind of element. And yeah. I think we we've watched um, what was that uh, the movie with the spider Web, Web of Death, Web of Death, which yeah, is Web also Death is that same movie. thing. Where yeah, you've it's, got, it's, like, it's, um, it's definitely in the same zone for sure. Um, yeah, but it's uh, it's got only got a few amount of bullets. Like that was an interesting element of it that it only had so many shots effectively. Yeah, and this is a little <laughs> more elegant. The, the the spider in Web of Death is crazy and wonderful, but this is a little bit more refined. I feel this has like a yeah. uh, um, there, there's the number one there in, in in Web of Death there is an antidote to the spider, but it's like a woman's blood, and in this. The antidote is also from a woman, but it's 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 that robe that she's wearing, and that it, it felt a little bit more poetic the way that that they were able to sort of trick you into thinking that that he was having this night where he was sleeping with her because she starts disrobing, and it turns out she was giving him the robe to wear uh, that he uses in the end of the movie to protect himself from the peacock dart. So yeah, there's a lot of really good like directorial sleight of hand with stuff like that in this movie yeah. that really makes it worth a rewatch. I'm gonna have to like actually sit down and watch it again, not because I was ever lost because it's really well telegraphed and it's really well explained, but like just because it deserves to be appreciated yeah. longer than its runtime. Oh, like, definitely. It was classic. definitely. Yeah. And and I I think Choi Yuen he, he I mean the like the, the cinematography in this this movie is really good. I think I think it, it does a really good job of just kind of establishing mood at times it, it's almost too dark for a computer screen so you really it's, it really does benefit from being seen on like a large tv i don't know yeah, if you had that experience but some of the scenes can be a little hard to see simply because it's so dark but that adds to the experience of it You're, it's this really yeah, they, dark world some of the scenes are really benefited by that darkness yeah. too like it's it's very immersive i will say one thing about the directing that kind of got so did start to grate on my nerves you will get very used to your main character walking alone into a giant empty set that is the establishing shot of 90 percent of this movie yep. <laughs> so Yuen quite likes that that's it um i think he's going for like that star wars effect do you know what i mean yeah. that like little character and big landscape shot um, yeah, sometimes it really looks great too, but it's just every single scene is going to start the same way. But but some of the stuff is amazing, like that scene where they go into the the, the riverside outdoor tavern and everybody's mm. dead, and and they're sort of and the way yeah. that the camera is moving, it's not three D, but it looks three dimensional. Do you know what I mean that scene yeah. looks really weird? And I don't know how they achieve that. I don't know. I don't know. They, what... Yeah, I don't know. There's an eeriness about it that that has. There's something there that your eye is is catching that your mind is like, what the hell am I seeing? Yeah, uh, it's it's eerie. And like when they start revealing like that, there's like blood trickling down their ears and noses, and that they've been dead since the establishing shot of this scene. It's it's grotesque and unsettling, you know. And uh, and also there's a, there's a, there's a few really interesting moments in the film. There's the um, uh, the scene with the woman who asks for the bowl of noodles. And yeah. it, it's like, a, um, you know what it felt like to me? You know, um, what was the first James Bond, uh, the the first James Bond novel? Was it Casino Royale? Yeah, Casino Royale was you, the first novel. You know, there's a whole thing with the woman who dies and all that stuff. It felt like all the drama of that book packed into like five minutes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, yeah, it, it's a little vignette that just kind of, it's, it's like closer to the end of the movie. And it just kind of, the whole, this whole little drama plays out in front of you whole thing every every moment it's, and, uh, it's un it's weird it doesn't like feel atonal because it like the themes of the whole movie are encapsulated in that little gemstone of a scene it's almost like a david lynch scene actually david lynch has this famous speech he did where he's talking about like movies are like a duck and there's one scene 
that's like the eye of a duck, that has to be in this one particular place and strike you in this one particular way, or else you're not looking at a duck. Okay. It felt like that, like this little encapsulating scene that was in like basically the perfect place for it in the movie. Like we just heard about his backstory. We just seen him go through all this stuff. We're right before the end of the movie and we have this whole mini movie right there in this one scene kind of encapsulates the whole thing. No, it's an interesting and it's a puzzling scene at the same time, but it's also very touching. Like you, like it's, you know, cause he gives her that flower and then she dies and she has to see the, you know, it's just a, it's a really well done scene. And, and I think T. Lung is the right kind of actor for that sort of scene. He's able to get that sort of teary eyed look, um, but still kind of be like the hero. Do you know what I mean? Um, but, uh, but yes, so there was that, and um, I think did we uh, did we talk about the chess scene at length? No, not really. Which is a great little scene. Um, so there's an actual there's like like Chinese chess with like the chariots and everything. The, mm. They do like a human chessboard type situation, but it's just really well done. And then when the when 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 the battle spills beyond the chessboard, the master chessman. It, continues to play chess with them it can it continues to be a chess game where he anticipates where they're going and sets up the trap at the river that we talked about before um and it's it, it's it, it's just one of these scenes that that i think some of the most memorable stuff probably happens in that scene number one that's the one where devil grandma talks about brazing miss you <laughs> and or uh miss uh whatever her name is and um and and talks about um uh the uh you know the how she, like that's where you sort of really see all the cannibalism at work, and uh, and 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 yeah. it's also a really good fight scene. It is. It's it's a good fight scene that again is almost like that's the moment I started taking the movie really seriously because I was like, this is some shit out of like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. This is crazy because like they they go into a market and they don't realize it's an ambush, uh, and the ambush is sprung and all the the minions draw like do like chalk lines and things like that on the ground to literally draw out a, a Chinese chessboard mm-hmm. for them to stand on and all the bad guys take up positions as it, where they would be in that game and and like so that's one of the, it's it's almost cartoonish but at the same time since it's shot at night and it's I don't think it's on a soundstage if it's on a soundstage it's a big one but it looks like they actually shot outdoors so the reality of the what you're like what you're seeing like the texture of it contrasts really strongly with the unusualness of the situation. That's a big, that's the moment when I was like sitting on the couch and I like set up a little straighter. I was like, yeah. what do we got here? Like that's the moment when the movie really grabbed me. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes like that in wuxia movies, but in this movie in particular, I mean, there's like three or four of these kind of scenes. Like in the very opening, yeah. uh, when he first meets uh, Yen Nanfei, he does that. He sets up a whole banquet for himself at the site of the duel and he has like all these servants and it's, it's all this pomp and ceremony and all this stuff. And it kind of demonstrates the power that the characters have, I guess it sort of gives you like, they can just, they can basically set up a palace in the middle of the road if they want to. Um, you know, they can, they can hold court wherever they want. Um, you know, they do it there. They do it at the chess scene. Um, even the actor is kind of doing that. The actor in the woods does that is doing something like that. I believe there might be at least one other scene like this. Um, but it recurs throughout the film. Uh, it does, and it it gives it puts you in the, as an audience in the mindset that the bad guys have control of the battlefield, like the actual the the stuff that's in it, the place they are, the location, and the geography is an element of of what they have and an expression of their own power. So, well, and and again, the, the the driving motive for them is wealth and power. Like that's the thing that he rejects at the end of the at the end of the movie, and that they're offering him is wealth and power. And so I think I think those scenes are kind of, you know, you need money and power to to be able to pull off that kind of demonstration, you know. Yeah, and it, uh, it contrasts with him a lot because like his motivation, whenever you get right back to it, was him wanting to go out and become like the best swordsman and famous and powerful. But then when he goes back home, he realizes that what he really wanted was to impress his lady friend, who's now moved on. Yeah. And the thing she tells him, like the little note on the door, is like, "You're gonna get old." in pursuit of power and you're never going to live your life. So when he's confronted with that over and over, like he's overcoming that specific villainy with his specific rejection of it as, as an expression of his heroism. That's amazing. It's really well put together. No, it's a, I mean, it's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. Um, and I think, uh, there, there are a few things we want to talk about sort of more generally, uh, related to, to gaming and to Wuxia. 
Um, we've already sort of discussed villains. So I know that you're you're playtesting some things. And I'm curious, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts, just, you know, particularly Wuxia, I suppose, but also just in general, thoughts on sort of playtesting and, and, um, and is it is it a module that you're playtesting or is it a is it a game system that you're playtesting? No, I'm, I'm playtesting my system, uh, but like I'm I'm designing stuff for it that'll probably be the little mini module mm. that's in the book itself. So I can actually give them like a little chunk of the post-apocalypse to play through. And I want to make sure I'm using the same kind of uh, content rules that I just wrote to actually prep this stuff. That's that's oh. been an interesting challenge because like even though. I made it in a lot of ways to ape the way you can do stuff in games like D&D. It's a very good example. I also was using some of the more experimental ideas that I saw from things like Blades in the Dark, and Justin Alexander talks about them with like the the conspiramid, where you have non, non-location stuff prepped, kind of like you'd prep a location, where you have kind of like an event map. Yep. And so there's some experimental stuff in there, too. So I was like, this is going to... I was really nervous, actually, before I got okay. to How did the playtest go? Uh, good so far. It actually is turning into a campaign, which is a good sign. Um, the very first one, like I um, actually, and I, I literally like yesterday or the day before, I just blogged out uh, like exactly uh, how what I what I did because there's not a lot to go on so far in the system. Like it's it's all very bare bones. Again, much like Sertorius, where like you don't need to have a huge amount of prep to run Sertorius well if you kind of get used to the system. Yeah. You can just be like, okay, this guy's got this, and they're going to be in this place. Um, there's a few pieces of rules tech that, like, you kind of pick up as a GM. I don't think anyone really formalizes this stuff, but maybe we should. Uh, Maybe we should so that we can describe it to the next generation of GMs. Like, a thing that my game specifically does, that I think every game actually does, is it says that you can take a description of an area and use that, like, whenever you need to, as elements of, like, a gameplay thing, like a tactical thing. So I could describe, like, a big forest full of trees... And that's just fluff until the players start chopping down the trees, in which case you got to stat the trees and think about what happens when they fall yeah, and yeah. that kind of stuff. My game makes that a little more, a little bit more of a formal process and draws a new GM's attention to it. So there's a bunch of stuff like that that's really helpful. Okay. Um, let me see. As far as in regards to this movie, this the the villains in this movie and the way they got introduced, that's a great thing to grab for a playtest or anything you don't have a ton of time to prep. Because, like, the, the little method they use, it's, a, it's always the same formula. It's a little trick, and it always works, which is you introduce the, the bad guy in a big flourish, and you show off their style with their personality. Yeah. So they have a big impact leading into the scene. You can also telegraph them, uh, which I did a little like, – this last playtest. I telegraphed um, – the bad guy was on the other side of a wall, and they were fighting all their minions on the the near side of the wall. And so I had this eruption of fire and this this like this martial arts like anger roar on the other side of the wall. So they knew what was about to happen. And next round, I introduced the character. That little tel- telegraph told them a lot. Yeah. And it built up the the apprehension in the mind, like, oh crap, now we got to fight this guy. <coughs> no, that's a great technique. I, I, in fact, I use that uh, in 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 my my recent playtest as well. It's um. I I think style and panache and like all these things like they they really are important in wuxia and you want to kind of yeah. connect the martial arts with the character and so I had a um I had like a simple escort adventure where they had to carry like a, uh, a an obsidian bat from point A to point B you know it's pretty fairly straightforward there's a little twist in the way but it's a straightforward <laughs> mission and but there's a guy named Iron Tooth Bat King who has these uh, three minions called the Iron Headed Badgers that are really stupid and he wants the obsidian bat simply because it's a bat and his name is bat and he just thinks anything with bat in it belongs to him it's a really sort of you know he, he doesn't have any real claim to ownership um That's so great. he sent, so he sends his badgers the badgers stop the party in the middle of the road and the badgers are too stupid to parlay with them and they get sort of uh humiliated by the by the party's words and so then i have bat king Iron Tooth Bat King swoop down and land in front of them and just call them, you know, morons. And and, and he introduces himself and he's really pushy and rude. And the thing that's interesting about Iron Iron Tooth Bat King is he's he's sort of ugly and he dresses in leather robes like a bat, but he's got this secret fear of beautiful women. And one of the characters had the beautiful eccentricity in the game, and so I decided uh, when I when I uh, when when I noticed that. That if that character 
actually speaks to Iron Tooth Bat King, he's going to radically change his behavior in response to her. And and so so that character eventually stepped up and demanded that Iron Tooth Bat King, you know, you know, stop insisting that they give him the obsidian bat. And and he got immediately apologetic and like, you know, it's sort of like it was sort of like fear but also adoration. And and the and the rest of the and the rest of the um the encounter just played totally well, but it it went from be from leaning towards being a combat encounter to just being a pure role play encounter. Where by the end of it, the players had this kind of ally who really was uh, like a toady of one of the party members, but despised the rest of them, and and it was it was it was an enjoyable enjoyable moment. Um, and I think that the, and I think I was taking a cue from Magic Blade doing that. It was that kind of a scene, you know. Um, yeah, it's a very Magic Blade. They, yeah. Again, though, that that works. It's a, it's a stupid sounding trick. Just have them come in with a flourish and do something cool. But it works. It really works. And it also helps the... Uh, it it kind of primes the players' minds for if they have some kind of cool power that's, like, really cheesy. Like, I, mm-hmm. I've not played any of the combat stuff, like any of the Kung Fu I just redesigned. Mm-hmm. So this, this boss that came in was, like, two ranks higher than anyone else. She's two degree higher, which is huge in this system. That's like being five levels above them. So, like, some of the powers that she had did stuff like, okay, so the players, because I telegraphed it really well, the players happened to have a tank they stole from her army. And their plan was when she jumped over or busted through the wall, they were going to shoot the tank, right, at mm-hmm. her, and then pull the lever again, because I told them, like, if you shoot, try to shoot it more than once in a round, it's going to blow up. It's a crappy tank. So they're going to shoot it once, hit her with it, and then shoot it again and explode it to just wipe her out. That's their plan. Here's the thing that I didn't realize. The defensive technique I gave her lets her absorb fire energy from mm-hmm. stuff like explosions and not only defend against it, but get her magic back that she spent on using the magic defense. Mm-hmm. So they fire the thing at her. It blows up all of her minions and ruins the courtyard. She does her thing, and I, I roll for how much she recovers, and she recovers the whole cost of her technique. So she just no-sells that. And they're all like, oh, God, pull it again, pull it again, pull it again. The tank explodes, destroying their tank, killing all the rest of the minions, showering the whole thing in flame. And she's just standing there because she uses the same technique again because she could afford it. Rolls the same thing again, and that has no effect on her at all. She's sitting there in the flames, cackling and taunting them. And that could seem kind of cheap if you didn't telegraph it. (laughs) No, that sounds like a very dramatic moment in the game, though. Oh, yeah, it came out like... They did manage to wreck her day after that, because it turns out it only works on fire really well. So otherwise, it's a kind of mediocre defensive technique. So uh, smashing her head over and over with a giant concrete block worked pretty good. But, uh, but yeah, she no <laughs> sold the tank. So that was kind of cool. I had to playtest an adventure. And one thing that I've sort of know, like I, I've probably said this before, and this kind of does tie to the martial arts thing that we're talking about, which is uh, in martial arts, we used to always say, you know, train the way you fight and fight the way you train. And I feel like playtesting and design, it's good to sort of follow that. That Like, like when you said a moment ago that your uh, playtest is turning into a campaign, my first thought was, yeah, that's good. Because that means that, means that you're making something that's ca- that can be a campaign. Do you know what I mean? It can, like, uh, you know, I, like when I did Ogre Gate, that was my main thing. I, I wanted to make sure I could actually run campaigns with it. And, and so I think, uh, I think if it's turning into a campaign, that means that you're sort of you know, training the way you fight. And, and so when I do modules now, like I don't sit down and write a module and then play test it. Do you know what I mean? I, I sit down and I come up with an adventure idea that I know can be turned into a module, but I prep it the way that I would normally prep a session. And then I try to, uh, from there, add all the material that would be needed for a GM who isn't me to understand how to make that all work. Do you know what I'm saying? I think that's the way to do it, too. Yeah. Because, like, I was... Uh, I've become kind of obsessed with Maze of the Blue Medusa after purchasing it. I finally managed to read the whole thing, by the way, uh, which had happened in the margins of my life, but it's really worth your $50 ticket. But that's, like, whenever you, you read about how uh, the designers of that dungeon did it, that's how they did it. Mm-hmm. They, they like, I think it was uh, Zach Smith just basically made a piece of art, and from that, him and, um... Oh, um... Uh, Patrick Stewart just kind of like they would go back and forth like what should be in this room what should be in this room what should be in this room and they they did it that way just kind of like they would prep a normal dungeon 
and it, it grew out of their actual experience and the way they would run it and uh, what they would need when they were running it. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I compared it, uh, when we were talking about House of Paper Shadows, why I compared it to that, because it's clear that you use that same kind of logic when you're making House of Paper Shadows. Like, it's it feels like something, like almost like I'm looking at your campaign notes. There's, mm-hmm. there's a genuineness to it, and there's a usability to it that has to come from experience. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I, I thank you, and but I do think that that's what that 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 was. Um, and I think uh, I think in, in in cases like the one I'm working on now, that's uh, the way the way to sort of uh, set it up is is you it's it's got it's got to be something that that you yourself can run. And I think I think there's always this temptation to sort of start by making a module. Do you know what I mean? Like making a module and then and then making the module work in action rather than coming up with something that works and then making a module out of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's the, yeah. And that's kind of like, I think what you're like, if you compare that to a a more general activity or not even general, but like a more um, concrete activity, that's like building the outside of a car before you build its engine. If you do it that way. Yeah. And you really need to start with how the engine is going to work. Yeah, I, I guess I guess that's that, that's a, I don't know enough about cars to really weigh in on that analogy actually, but I'll take your word for it that that you got to build the engine first. My my whole family's full of mechanics. That was the first one I went to. I, I almost mindlessly just accepted it, but then I was like, wait a second, I don't know a damn thing about cars. I, I I'll, I'll 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 admit my ignorance here. Um, I I can I can't even change a tire, Joel. I can like uh, Man, really if, if I had to, I would probably be able to figure it out. Like I have a I have a spare and I have a. Um, whatever you call those things that lift the car, the jack, I have a jack. Um, but uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at all, uh, knowledgeable in, in mechanics or anything like that. So, oh, man, so the bottom great. line is when the zombie apocalypse happens, I'll be one of the first people to die. You're um, not going to be the car guy. Un- well, unless I can find a car guy that needs like some skill that I have, I'm, I'm screwed. <laughs> But, uh, that's that's really entertaining. I didn't know that. I didn't mean to to surprise you with the complex car analogy. No, and it wasn't. I mean, I can tell from the analogy, it's not complex. Like most people probably that know a you know single thing about a car know what you're saying. But I I, <laughs> I, I know very little about auto. machinery. Oh man. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I mean, you can pro- people can probably deduce this. I'm not an engineering nerd. Do you know what I mean? That's not that's not my specialty. Um, different kind yeah, of nerd. Yeah, I'm a different kind nice. of nerd. We come in different varieties, folks. You know, I, I'm, I'm always I'm always in in awe of the engineering nerds, though, because they can do very practical things. You know, yeah, they they got um, like much like uh, uh, I I grew up a lot in a, an engineering near an engineering college, and like computer engineers are the guys that seem like wizards to me. I've since learned more about computers, but they seriously seem like they can just do magic on those things. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, it's yeah, I love those guys. If there's any uh, is any computer. Uh, comp sci majors out there you have my respect immediately yeah i feel the same yeah i'm the same with computers like i know a little bit when i was a kid i learned how to do basic but i never got beyond that oh that's cool yeah Yeah. it it does help if you like if you're like us and you're incredibly ancient and there's dust falling off of your bones because you were there whenever computers were learning how to be computers Mm -hmm. you know like i I used to play zork on an old commodore 64 where you took the floppy disks and inserted that it would go like an old fan. Yeah, I remember the, and, uh, I remember the Commodore 64. Yeah, you know, so like once once you've seen those things in action, you can kind of understand that okay, so the principles are still in modern computers. They're just in much smaller, more efficient, you know, machines. So it it all it hangs together a little bit better for you. I think I don't know if my kids are going to be better or worse at actually understanding how computers work because like they're better at the, like the technology I, and the, the user interface stuff but I don't know if they're going to be able to like have that kind of intuitive sense of I feel like the stuff under the hood is now hidden from the users more um, yeah, but there must fine. but there are clearly people that like to get under that hood so I think there'll always be people that know that stuff but it's but but when we were young you kind of had, you had to know some basics just to get a like like it wasn't like now like like number 1 if you bought a game it was an actual disc and you had to put it in and and then if you wanted to run the game, you had to type commands into the mm. into the screen, and so it was it was a little bit more involved. Yeah, and um, they were they were a piece of hardware that was a little more. They weren't they hadn't grown up as much as a consumer product. Cars are the same way. Remember, you and I aren't quite ancient enough to have seen cars when they were really old and everything was a stick shift. 
or something. But our parents grew up with that, and so our parents are both real, a lot better with cars than we are. They know them more intuitively because they were there when cars were still babies and they hadn't matured as consumer products yet. Now, now, just to bring this back into the to the topic, um, we're talking Sorry. about you know cars, which are extraordinary objects. How do we how do we bring these extraordinary objects from uh, Magic Blade into a campaign? Like, do, do you have any thoughts on the really powerful ones? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually, because like there's a lot of really tight balance in the game I'm designing, and so I'm I'm reluctant to like have really powerful like magic weapons. Like peacock dart's a good example. Like I'm reluctant to have that come into a campaign because I don't want it. I don't want the campaign to be about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that's it's always a risk is that if you Monty Hall the campaign where you you overward the players, the campaign becomes about their newest shiny thing and not about like their strategic interaction with the world mm-hmm. or their their personal goals. It's about oh we've got freaking Excalibur we can cut down anything. Um, actually, I had a campaign I did that too intentionally, which was fun. I, I started a campaign. Just total, totally normal dungeon crawl, session one. But session two, I had the players uh, go to this ancient, uh, this ancient, like, temple of the gods, and they found 12 weapons, each of which was, like, a world-ending disaster in itself, at level two. Okay. And so suddenly the whole world was turning on what the characters do with these weapons, and everyone wanted to kill them and take them. So it became a series of making deals with the weapons they weren't going to keep, and giving those to people that they thought were more like uh, amenable to their their survival, and that was interesting. So you can Monty Hall in a way that's a really that creates a fascinating campaign. I feel. Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I I'm, there's a lot. I, I'm a real Monty Hall GM. I struggle with this a lot. So I'm I'm nervous about giving them a weapon that's so powerful it changes the ten, the tenor of the campaign. It, a well, lot. Here's what I, what I'll say. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm a Monty. I don't think I'm a Monty Hall GM. I think. Um, <laughs> But I don't mind putting weapons like this into the game. And I think especially for Wuxia, I feel like it fits. It fits, and and, and, in, a, and in a world where you have people that will... Like, like look at what the guy who has the peacock dart has to do just to, man, just to get by each day. Do you know what I mean? He's got mm. a whole palace set up, or like a whole manor house set up with this elaborate security system and like a double fake. And, and even then, he's still got people infiltrating him that are planning to betray him. Like half the guys in his manor are double are agents for Master Yu. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and they and they betray him at the at the moment when the peacock dart is 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 revealed. So, I feel like there's a natural balancer within the campaign setting itself of a Wuxia game, where you'll have, uh, <coughs> you know, people will be gunning for the party if they have this kind of a weapon, and 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 maybe it does turn the campaign into being more about the weapon. But it's not necessarily a bad campaign to have if if there are other things going on that are interesting and the weapon itself becomes more of like a complication of their ascension to power. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it gives them a, a tool that they have access to that they can use that gives them maybe a place in the martial world, but it also makes them an instant target for anybody that wants that tool. Um, and I, I think that th- that can be interesting. And also, you know... Wuxia is supposed to be about all these different sects and stuff like that. And one of the real challenges of a game, player characters are naturally resistant to being part of an order. Do you know what I mean? They don't like yeah. they don't like being part of an order. And if they do, they want to be one player wants to be part of his own order, and then another player wants to be part of a different order. They, they all want to be unique. And this is something that can actually bind a party together and 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 create a sense of a sect within the party that that's real. Do you know what I mean? Um, if they if they all collectively have this tool, and then they kind of need to form an organization around it to uh, to deflect any potential attackers. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to do it, I think. And again, with my uh, with the way I, I did that Monty Hall campaign, the the intentional Monty Hall campaign, that's what happened. The the players found themselves kind of bound by this circumstance where. They no longer had an option to just walk away from what they had. Like they, by getting these like you know world destroying weapons, they they basically had a collection of nuclear weapons, and everyone wanted them. Mm. So th- there was a kind of a glue from the circumstance itself that bound them together. And that really did happen in a game. Like so, even taking that to an extreme, like I did, it did work. 
Like that's that's a real effect that will happen in games. Um, one of the things I've seen it I've seen it approached a lot of ways because it it can really change games. The way uh, Legends of the Wulin did it was interesting in that these weapons had their own destiny. So whenever you got XP for cool stuff that you did with the weapon, it would go to the weapon, mm. not you. Mm. And the legend of the weapon would increase, but you would just be the schmuck who had the weapon. Okay. So like that actually really screwed up your advancement a lot. So there was a real downside to there's like a no right. I, I, that sort of tactic can work too. I, I tend to prefer in game things, but I, I think that would work too. And I think uh, another thing too is you can you can play like the peacock dart is naturally limiting. It doesn't have an endless yeah. supply, um, so that's gonna that's eventually gonna wear out on its own. Um, but and it has a weakness. You know you have that robe that can deflect it, and so I think if you give it a built-in weakness or a flaw of some kind that's particularly uh, distressing to to a person when it's when it's when it happens at the wrong moment, then it can it can be. It, that's another way to balance it. Um, yeah, but... that that movie actually is a really good example of how to do it right, where it has a limited number of shots, and although it's really powerful, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, like that's that's a great limiter. And even just, I like the the idea of there being the 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 robe as well, because first of all, it's surprising as an audience member, so that was fun. And second of all, it's good to have something that. It, a lot of times uh, defensive stuff gets criticized for not being very interesting. I wholeheartedly disagree. Being able to no-sell stuff is actually freaking rad. Like, and from a guy who just saw a tank explode in the face of his big bad evil guy and who just no-sold it, it had a big effect. Yeah, I don't know, it could work. And also, this is kind of cool because, like, I mean, in a movie, naturally the hero gets the robe and it's sort of dramatically used at that moment. In a game, that's not necessarily going to happen. What you do is you plant those seeds... And if the players get them, it can come up and it can play out that way. But it doesn't necessarily have to. Um, but it's something that the players can shoot for. Because in a, in a game, when the players <coughs> encounter something like the peacock, peacock dart, and if they know it, one of their opponents has it, they're naturally going to start looking for ways to defend against the peacock dart. And so it's useful to say, oh, well, there is actually this robe that supposedly exists that you might be able to find. Um, you know, th- that, that can be, uh, uh, you know... It, it can be an interesting adventure for the party to go on. It it can be a cool tactic that they that they can that they can try to use to out outwit the the, the super powerful weapon. Um, and also, it's not limited yeah. to the things you create that prior to the campaign. The players might come up with ideas themselves that uh, yeah make sense. They, they might craft their own robe, which would be cool. They also might not know the robe works. Well, a wonderful thing would be like another wonderfully one nerve wracking thing could be if they find the robe and it's this old tatty piece of crap that's in this like abandoned crate somewhere. They're like, are we certain this is the right robe? One of us is going to risk their life against the peacock dart to see if this works. Who's it going to be? Yeah, there is that. There is there there is that. That's like when somebody gets like a flame resistant robe and they they don't necessarily just jump into lava right out of the uh, right out of the gate. Yeah, the, the wonderful thing about that is there's no way to test it. It's either going to work as a peacock dart or it isn't. It might not even be good armor. Like, that was clearly just a silk robe, but it was alchemically treated in a way that made it immune to the peacock dart, which means if you tested that with anything else, you just destroy the robe. Yep. <laughs> the only yeah. way to test it is to leap into the volcano, and that's wonderful. And so, um, so yeah, so we're, we're, get, we're past the hour mark now, so oh, I think we're going to... Oh, curses. We're, gonna we're a little farther. We're going to want to end it here, but... Um, I think we're doing 36 Chamber next, right? And I think we're going to be this talking is, yeah. about acquiring techniques and things like that. Wasn't that the topic that we had wanted to discuss? Uh, yes, indeed. And actually, actually, the last thing I wanted to say about the, the cool Kung Fu weapons is the thing I'm doing in my game with them is that I'm just giving them Kung Fu powers, like mm-hmm. really powerful ones, and using them as a teacher for players. So okay. making them a part of the character's advancement isn't a bad way to do it. You kind of give them a little sample early. You should really read... Um... Return of Condor Heroes, if you have not read it. Um, <laughs> it. It's not quite what you're describing, but there is there's a scene where Yangua goes to a cave, and there's this great master who leaves behind these swords, and he takes... And each of the sword is sort of like... Comes with a philosophy of like, when I was this age, I, I understood this about sword play, and this is the sword I use. And so Yangor uses that sword, and he has to understand like these key principles that this sword sort of embodies for whatever reason. Like it's blunt and really heavy or something, and he's got to learn how to master it. And and then by the end, you're supposed to be able to do it without a sword. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, yeah. But uh, but you might you might be able to draw something 
off of uh, off of that segment of Return of Condor Heroes. Um, Doesn't sound too bad. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so we'll head out. Uh, we'll be back with Thirty Six Chamber, and I think we're gonna eventually, hopefully, do Chinese Ghost Story. Once my, I, I ordered a Blu-ray to send to Joel. Once that arrives, it's going right to him, and then him, me, and Adam, and I think possibly uh, somebody from Europe and. Uh, might be coming in right yeah possibly we could grab david ramirez too he's really interested to talk about it so we might have four people for that discussion and also this coming friday we're going to be talking about bloody parrot uh which is a um which is another interesting similar style wuxia movie to magic blade it's not it's not quite the same it's this it's directed by a different director and uh but it's also based on gulong material and uh we'll be talking about that on friday and, and yeah, so until then, we will talk to you later.